five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hey, space enthusiasts. I thought we may also have an episode once in a while talking about specific important components of spacecraft. This is the first such episode. My guest this week is Matt Villarreal. He's the co-founder and CEO of Infinite Composites. They design and manufacture composite pressure vessels. If you don't yet know what that is, you will after this episode. Enjoy. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review and rating on your fa- favorite podcast platform, such as Apple, so more people can find it. Thank you. You can also follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Your couple of short messages from our sponsors, and then please enjoy my conversation with Matt. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. Hey everybody, I'm here today, well, not here, virtually here, with uh, Matt Villarreal from Infinite Composites. Welcome, Matt. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. And Matt, you're a founder CEO of Infinite Composites. Do you want to give us the elevator pitch on what Infinite Composites does? Sure. Yeah. So um, Infinite Composites uh, designs, develops, and manufactures ultra-lightweight gas storage systems for uh, primarily aerospace and transportation applications. And uh, what makes our technology different than others is uh, we use a linerless design, linerless all-composite design. So typically, you have a a metal or a plastic liner. uh, You form carbon fiber over top of that, and uh, that's your tank. Uh, With ours, we've eliminated the need for that plastic liner. Uh, which reduce a metal or plastic liner, which reduces the mass, the cost, and the lead time, uh, providing uh, the optimal solution for uh, uh, for storing high pressure and cryogenic fluids. Right. So, so leaving aside the technical lang- language, it's basically tanks we're talking about, right? Yeah, gas storage tanks. So these could be yes, like yeah. uh, anything uh, from like your barbecue grill tank, uh, propane tank, uh, all the way up to uh, propellant tanks for lunar landers. Yeah. And clearly very exciting that the, the thing in your barbecue could be having something to do with the lunar lander. That's, that's a very exciting note. Sure. <laughs> um, but yeah. joke, jokes, jokes aside, um, how did you wake up one day and decide to do that? Just like, I'm really dissatisfied with the way tanks are at the moment and let, let me improve this. Yeah, it's actually a, a pretty interesting story. Uh, my co-founder and I, uh, when we were in college back in uh, 2009, uh, we actually started working uh, with an engineering team who was building quarter-scale Formula One cars. Um, and so they had to raise the money, they had to build the car, recruit the engineers and then you'd go to competition against teams from all over the world so uh you know like university of stuttgart uh would have their car out there and um so our team didn't have any money and uh, we hadn't been to competition in four years so uh, my partner and i joined the team to bring sort of a business aspect to it and get it going again and uh, one of the ways that we raised money was converting the cars to run on alternative fuels so the first year we Mm -hmm. did ethanol 
Uh, it was, you know, it, it was all right. It got us some money, but the second year we were looking to go bigger. And uh, so we converted to compressed natural gas, uh, which uses a high pressure tank. The one we used was all metal. And we really uh, felt the pain when we uh, did a 24 hour endurance event and we drove the car 590 miles. But uh, we realized that the tank was incredibly heavy. It was about 10% of the weight of the vehicle. Didn't really hold much fuel. And we kept having to refuel over and over and over again. So we started looking around for other opportunities or other options and um, came across an article in Composites World magazine that said linerless composite tanks were the holy grail of gas storage. And they could revolutionize space exploration and sustainable transportation. And uh, to me, that uh, seemed like an invitation to uh, try to create the uh, holy grail of gas storage. And so we, my co-founder and I put 500 bucks into an account and uh, started applying for research funds and uh, just kind of developed it organically from there. Okay. And I'm going to take a step back and open a bracket here. Did you say quarter scale Formula One race? There's such a thing. Yeah. So it's a, it's actually a program called Formula SAE. And uh, this is basically uh, a lot of the people who go into the automotive companies for engineering. This is like what they do in college as a hobby or as a uh, kind of extracurricular activity. So we created the world's first uh, compressed natural gas powered uh, formula style race car. And uh, we set the world records both uh, years that we did a 24-hour endurance event with it. Oh, wow. So it's like a cool thing like uh, th that is actually is relatively well known around engineering departments, it sounds like. like I don't know, something sure, like yeah, a Hyperloop, yeah. uh -huh. Hyperloop Challenge or something. something yeah, like it's, kind that. Of a, it's kind of a similar uh, type of idea. Um, yeah, it's all, it's all you know, extracurricular. Students have to do all the work, raise the money, and all the, uh, all the designs and stuff. And you build the car basically from scratch. Yeah. And uh, what were you guys doing in college? So I assume you were in an engineering department. Uh, no, actually, uh, my... My, neither my co-founder or I are uh, engineers by training. Um, my degree was uh, entrepreneurship and emerging enterprises, basically mm -hmm. business administration. His was uh, advertising and PR. Um, but uh, uh, I've always been really interested in engineering, technology, like my free time. You know, I study like material science stuff and look at, mm -hmm. you know, schematics of rockets and, you know, build stuff, break stuff, all that kind of thing. So I've always had a passion for it. And uh, I thought this was a good opportunity to uh, take on a very hard challenge and, uh, you know, stretch my engineering legs. Uh, but we have and, a, quite yeah. a few engineers on our team. And, and you're right. I, I think I, I think you actually said the engineering guys of the team, they came to you specifically and you could add the business expertise. So that makes a lot of sense. And it's actually sure. funny, like, you know, in my day job as a venture capitalist in the space sector, it's it's actually quite a common problem for the moment where, you know, if anything, most of the founding teams are engineering heavy and they precisely need the help business uh, business educated sure. guys yeah. like, like you like you guys were. So that makes a lot mm -hmm. of sense. Okay, but pivoting again to the, to the technical side, can you elaborate a little bit more about sort of like, um, because this is clearly I know nothing about. I've never thought about. Like, sure. what was the problem with like the 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 way the tanks were traditionally done with the liners? Um, I, I guess you mentioned it's sure. too heavy, but what what else is there? Yeah, I mean, it, it's pri the primary value proposition for us is the mass, but also the uh, liners. Uh, and this is primarily in the space sector. The liners can uh, be about fifty percent of the cost and 80% of the lead time. So just to make one liner, sometimes for a program, it may take a whole year uh, because you're using exotic alloys, you're doing all sorts of processing to try to make it thinner and thinner and thinner. And uh, the other advantage is uh, by removing the liner, uh, we've eliminated the most common cause of failure in these tanks, which is uh, liner fatigue and liner rupture. Um, so if, you, uh, if you're familiar with the uh, SpaceX uh, explosion in 2016, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, what happened there was the liner inside of the tank collapsed due to the uh, liquid oxygen penetrating the uh, composite. And so um, basically, that's not a failure mode that we uh, would see in our tank. So it's, uh, it's safer, it's lighter weight, better performance. Uh, in many cases, it costs less and uh, the lead time shorter. And so if you zero in on, 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 on the mass advantage, I mean, what, how much of an advantage, roughly speaking, are we talking about here? Is it like half the weight? Is it 10% less? What, roughly what Yeah, is so we're, we're typically about 40% lighter than the state-of-the-art uh, composite okay. over tanks. That's a lot. Tanks. Okay. I assume tanks is obviously a not insignificant um, percentage of the vehicle mass, right? Yeah, so uh, in, in rockets uh, or space launch vehicles, about 60% of the vehicle's dry weight is tanks. So essentially you got... A, a tank with a tank stacked on top and then two more tanks stacked on, on top with, you know, rocket engines on the bottom and uh, either payload bearings or couplers on top. Um, so a significant portion. And then even in uh, satellites and lunar landers, uh, you know, the tanks make up a significant portion, usually over 50% of the vehicle's mass. I guess um, specifically, and I understand that your tanks have use cases outside of the space sector as well. But I guess in the space mm-hmm. sector, sort of one balancing act we're still always trying to do is sort of between, let's say, taking something proven, you know, with space heritage that has worked, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of times in some in some mm-hmm. cases back back to the 1960s, right? And having, you know, sure. that advantage of the being proven versus like, you know, trying something new that may be much better, but then people are sort of like, you know, traditionally risk averse, right? Very often in the sure. space sector. How has been, how has that experience been for you guys in trying to like, you know, push a, a non-traditional product in, in a way? right yeah i mean it uh it, it has there have been some challenges with that with more of the uh kind of traditional space companies you know the lockheed martin type you know those guys are risk averse they want to see basically other people try your product before they're willing to uh to put it on their vehicle but because the uh, advantage is so impactful a lot of the new space companies are really trying to push the envelope and reduce the mass of their vehicles so they can either um you know put more cargo on in the case of a rocket or put more transponders on or more equipment on in the case of a satellite. Um, so they're, the smaller companies are a lot more uh, risk-taking and focused on performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, the larger companies, you know, they're, they, it takes a lot more to uh, to get them to adopt a new technology. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, right? Also, it's, it's the difference between, um, I guess, just going and putting this on a, on, on a big rocket, maybe, you know, even with astronauts on top versus uh, experimenting in a, you know, like a, a, a CubeSat or a small sad. So is that where sure. you guys are seeing more tractions or so what are you roughly your customer groups? Like is it like you know satellite propulsion uh, people or yeah I mean we're we're kind of a we have a, a broad range of different customers. So um, we've got a couple of uh, small launch vehicle programs that are going on. We've got two satellite buses um, a DARPA constellation uh, that we're working on thanks for you know most of them most of them aren't like in the cubesat size although that is an area of interest for us just because it's kind of low cost you know easy mm-hmm. kind of adoption but uh, a lot of them are in i i guess they would be considered small sats and uh, small launch vehicles uh we are about to close a deal for uh, one of the lunar lander programs to, mm-hmm. to provide some tanks for that and then we have a, a bunch of different aviation uh, contracts so a hypersonic vehicle a hydrogen powered aircraft yeah we're, we're starting to kind of spread out from space and getting more traction for mostly hydrogen related applications outside of space but yeah broad range of different vehicles 
similar tank on everyone, just a slightly different configuration. But so where exactly is the company? Are you guys selling product now or is it still a D phase or where are you guys now? Yeah, so we've uh, we've been uh, selling products since 2013. Uh, we started the company okay. in 2010. You know, we put our first products in service, mostly in the industrial sector for natural gas fueling. Um, so those tanks have been in service for for a few years. But uh, yeah, we're, we're selling products now. Uh, just got our kind of a largest kind of longer term contract for 55 uh, units for a small launch vehicle program. And uh, we have uh, quite a few development projects that we're working on right now. And so the idea with those is you you develop the product. You know, these companies have very specific requirements and both size, form factor, as well as testing and stuff like that. So you go through mm -hmm. these development programs and then at the end of the development program, you know, integrate it into the vehicle and then you start selling that product to the Uh, customers. So um, that's how a lot of our, our projects are right now. Um, but uh, we expect this year to start uh, providing some off-the-shelf components that mm -hmm. uh, people could just go onto our website and uh, have access to uh, the most advanced tanks in the world, you know, with just a, a swipe of a credit card. Yeah. And so the company started, if I heard correctly, 2011, first product 2013. So it was basically like a, sounds like a two-year initial R&D period to perfect the tank was that it yeah we we started in uh, actually in 2010 uh we okay. spent about two and a half years on uh, r d uh, another two and a half three years kind of trying to build up the team get access to our own equipment uh, we were we were working with the university initially because they had some of the equipment we needed and so mm -hmm. yeah it's been it's been a long process we've kind of had to uh, do it more or less organically but we have raised uh, about four and a half million dollars of, uh, of funding over that time uh, from angel investors and some institutional investors but it's quite hard building a manufacturing operation. You know, the technology was one thing, uh, one challenge, but uh, building the manufacturing plant and getting uh, consistent, repeatable processes uh, is, a, is a big time challenge. Yeah, so that, that's interesting, the, the manufacturing process you're talking about, because I guess there is this, this, this standard challenge that always is for the, the scaling up, right? If you go from like smaller... Mm -hmm smaller unit numbers to hopefully something that's, you know, I don't want to say mass manufacturing, but maybe it is, right? So what has been, or what, what's your experience with that, with that challenge? Um, well, I think, uh, you know, the challenges are kind of unique in our uh, area because it's a, a little bit of uh, a little bit of chemistry, well, a decent amount of chemistry, and then just very trying to meet very tight tolerances and very uh, kind of specific requirements mm -hmm. of the customers, uh, a lot of testing heavy stuff. And so, You know, it's a, uh, it's just many different variables that have to be tightly controlled, um, and you know, doing it with you know limited capital and resources, um, you have to get very creative to uh, to solve a lot of the problems. So, um, you know, we've had to develop some of our own equipment, you know, from mm -hmm. scratch. You know, create new processes that never existed before, nobody's really had access to, and even creating, uh, helping to create new standards because um, a lot of the standards that exist, uh, uh, kind of globally always assume that you have a, a liner in your tank. So we have mm -hmm. to, you know, work with our clients and standards committees and, uh, and even sometimes uh, the, the federal government to, you know, to work out a, a qualification plan to even get these things to, uh, to be allowed on certain vehicles. And so, you know, I think it's, it's a common problem with many new products that are just charting new territory, but um, yeah, many different variables to, uh, to control and uh, everything's kind of a new experience when you're, when you're doing something like this. And so on, on the space side, would your typical customer, would it be like a, a propulsion company that then integrates it into its uh, whole system or how should I imagine that? Yeah, I mean, uh, so it, it's uh, either kind of a propulsion company or a vehicle integrator. 
Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So like, um, you know, Tala Salina space was a group that we were working with, uh, out of Europe for, uh, integrating our tanks into their satellites, but also, um, you know, like Orbion space technology, who's, you know, primarily focused on just the propulsion system, both of those groups. And then, uh, there's, there's also been some, uh, some customer traction with um, these kind of engineering firms who are contracted out to uh, develop a new design or, um, you know, modify an existing vehicle to, uh, to have new capabilities or to, uh, you know, just improve on the, uh, on, on the design. So um, those are kind of the three different kind of customer types we deal with. On the space side, your tanks could be used for sort of like any of the um, standard propel propellants, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, liquid, liquid oxygen, um, RP-1, uh, or the, 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 the in-space fluid uh, propellants like xenon, krypton. Yeah, so we haven't uh, we haven't done any testing on uh, RP-1 or hydrazine, but uh, most of the other propellants uh, we have been able to store. So nitrous oxide, liquid oxygen, uh, liquid methane, uh, xenon, krypton. A lot of times it's helium, high-pressure helium and nitrogen mm -hmm. for uh, pressurant tanks. Um, and then right now we're working through some testing to prove out our capabilities in liquid hydrogen. Um, so broad range of... Uh, fluids that we can store um, and we're we're constantly looking for partners that are interested in testing new new fluids yeah those are kind of what what we have experience storing now mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm gonna demonstrate my lack of technical knowledge uh, now but sort of is there is there um you know uh, material differences or adjustments you have to make depending on the type of propellant you're storing like do you have to modify your tanks in certain ways you know there's there's differences between the cryogenic fluids and the high pressure fluids um, we mm -hmm. have two separate resin systems there. And then some of the more aggressive fluids, we also modify the resins to, to be compatible. Um, so oftentimes it's minor tweaks to the chemistry or different additives that, uh, uh, that need to be included. But um, that, that's part of our core competency is uh, adapting our resin system to uh, meet new fluid compatibilities. Have your tanks flown in space? And if not, sort of when, when would they fly in space? Yeah, they unfortunately, they haven't flown in space yet. We thought we were going to get it last year, but uh, basically mm -hmm. a lot of the uh, flight opportunities uh, kind of slid into 2022. We have a high probability of uh, flying on a hypersonic aircraft in the next eight weeks. And then uh, we have a rocket launch and another satellite constellation that will uh, start launching towards the end of this year. A hypersonic aircraft sounds that that, that sounds interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's a uh, it's going to be a, a launch from one of the largest planes ever uh, ever made. So pretty excited about that. Good stuff. Well, you know, I hope you guys going to get into actual space um, this year. As space heritage always always very important, of course. So in in terms of um, the, the way the company is going to grow going forward, sort of you know what's the what's the main strategy and you know where do you ideally see the company in I don't know like five years time or whatever you think this, the, the right time frame is yeah so um, kind of our our uh, future path uh, we see uh, good opportunities for uh, uh, taking the company public in the future uh, whether that's by traditional traditional means or a SPAC. Uh, we're in some some discussions about uh, doing a, a SPAC probably in 18 to 24 months. Um, but uh, in the meantime, you know, we're, uh, we're raising some capital on an equity crowdfunding site called Spaced Ventures. Uh, mm -hmm. Just a small round, uh, kind of a friends and family because our, our you know, 
friends and family who are non-accredited investors uh, haven't been able to participate in any of our uh, financing rounds. Um, and then we're also uh, working on some institutional investors for uh, a small Series A, uh, hoping to close that uh, midway through this year. But uh, kind of our, our growth path on the product side, as I mentioned earlier, we're looking to certify more off-the-shelf tanks that can just be you know, purchased with as a transaction, not having to, you know, customize or develop new, uh, you know, geometries and stuff like that. And then uh, we're also considering some some possible acquisition activity to uh, capture more downstream value. So this would be like, um, for instance, uh, gas transport modules that are just uh, the primary purpose is just moving high pressure gases from one point to another or even, uh, you know, full propulsion modules, stuff like that. So going beyond just the the tank side and starting to integrate more structures and providing more composite-based uh, uh, components um, and combining those into more systems. So that's kind of it's probably a lot to swallow. We're taking a kind of a stepwise approach in that, but that's where we're looking to go with the company um, in the future. And I forgot to ask... Um... So how much do these tanks cost? I mean, I realize that obviously it will depend on the size and the type, but if you take some, you know, I don't know, a common example, whether that's a small sat uh, tank for satellite propulsion or something like that. Typically, so we have a very wide range of uh, sizes all the way from uh, mm -hmm. uh, like a quarter of a liter to 350 liters right now. I would say mostly they're between the ten dollars and $50,000 range per unit uh, with some okay. of those, you know, being outliers uh, where they have very, you know, tough requirements, or we have to do a ton of uh, acceptance testing. So, uh, but those are the general ranges right now. Okay. So it's actually interesting. It's not neither cheap nor expensive, but still, if you have sort of a satellite propulsion, like the, the full the full system often costs like, still often costs about $200,000. Um, it's still a reasonable percentage. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, definitely. And, and one of the things that we've seen is, um, you know, sometimes being the uh, lowest cost provider uh, is a detriment. Um, you know, okay. many customers think if you're uh, that low cost, like, how can it be good? And so we've been <laughs> trying to stay on par with uh, most of the competition or, you know, kind of in the, the same range with those. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's also highly dependent on the industry or you're uh, delivering the products to and uh, the more industrial applications is very commoditized and very price focused. And it uses different materials. So the carbon fibers, industrial grade versus aerospace grade. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, those are going to be much lower cost uh, tanks versus the the space ones, which, you know, sometimes you have to use exotic fibers you have to do very um, risky testing or even you know sometimes it's uh, it's borderline crazy what the customers want us to do to these tanks uh, to uh, to prove them out so yeah it can kind of vary yeah so um exotic fibers and uh, specialized raisins and all of that it, it sounds like very specialized stuff have you guys sort of uh, had any uh, trouble with all of the supply chain issues that many industries are experiencing at the moment yeah we we haven't uh, had too much trouble to be honest we're not ordering in the volume kind of volumes of uh, of materials that uh, would uh, cause our suppliers uh, a lot of challenges but uh, we did run into a situation where our uh, one of our vendors couldn't get uh, one of the feedstock components that they needed to make our resin which is a very customized formulation mm -hmm. um and so that was that was a little scary uh, primarily because they couldn't give us a lead time on it and we were 
very close to uh, to running out. And so, you know, that was a little bit scary, but it was resolved within a week and uh, we're, we're on our way. But uh, as we start uh, going to higher volume uh, production, um, you know, I think uh, the carbon fiber supply chain right now is a little bit constrained, but uh, there are uh, some new carbon fiber plants coming online uh, over the next 18 to 24 months. So, I think they're trying to stay ahead of it, and they're investing heavily in uh, in doing that. Your production process, as such, how automated is it? It's mostly automated, CNC controlled, but you do want to have uh, personnel kind of around watching it, uh, and sometimes intervening. You know, if uh, you have a fiber slip out of place or something, you can pause it and and correct it uh, in process. But it's uh, it's almost all automated on the actual production side. We're doing a lot of 3D printing of uh, of sacrificial components and tooling and then uh, the the actual carbon fiber winding process is is basically like a cnc lathe that uh, instead of a cutter on the end it has a a payout eye where the carbon fiber uh, gets gets pulled through um, and applied to the tank so uh, very automated very scalable even with our uh, kind of capital constraints uh, i want to say 75 percent of the process is uh, is done by a uh, the machine on its own. What are actually the sort of alternatives for customers, uh, whether it's the the traditional quote unquote traditional uh, tanks with liners or what you're doing? I'm asking that because I seem to remember that. Of course, sometimes I go and visit, you know, uh, for example, the, the launch companies, and I seem to remember I was walking around the factory floor of one of those launch companies, and and, and uh, one of the areas they basically had their own sort of uh, carbon fiber uh, spinning machines, kind of spinning up mm-hmm. tanks. Is, is that something people do do in house, or yeah, what is what is the competitive landscape? I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, I mean, there, there's quite a few companies uh, making uh, composite tanks in-house. Uh, there's only two that I know of who are making uh, linerless composite tanks, at least the the higher pressure side. Um, you know, very low pressure cryo tanks can be uh, all composite, but uh, really only two competitors with a product that's comparable to ours. One of those is being acquired uh, likely by another launch company. Uh, the other is more like a kind of R&D company. They don't uh, think they're uh, really focused on you know high volume production, uh, mostly just creating new materials and uh, selling or licensing those materials to other people. You know, the, the comp- direct competition is is not very high, but I have seen uh, actually quite a bit of, of uh, kind of new projects, mostly from like universities and academia, uh, trying to do uh, linerless composite tanks. So um, it's a it's a it's a good time right now for us to scale up and and basically establish the uh, the product category as a as a player in the market. Um, but uh, you know, a lot of the guys who are doing their own tanks in house, they're they're doing type three tanks, which are the metal liner tanks. It, it's primarily a lot of the bigger companies who have that capability because it takes takes quite a bit. It's not just uh, you buy the machine and you turn it on and you 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 know make the tanks. There's a lot that has to go into the designs and the uh, the controls and the processes to uh, to make a successful tank. Yeah, and, and speaking about companies who like to do stuff in house and, and, and bigger companies, do you have any insight, for example, um, um, what SpaceX is doing, and both on the Falcon Nine, but sort of more excited, uh, excitingly on on the Starship tanks? Um, yeah, I mean we've we've uh, done some work with SpaceX uh, early on in the Starlink program, um, and they've come back to us again for uh, to bid on some tanks for both Starlink and Starship. The the biggest problem with them is they are so cost focused. They wanted to buy um, you know tanks that that earlier on earlier projects we were uh, specking out at five to seven thousand dollars. They were looking to buy them for like eight hundred dollars, comparable to. <laughs> 
you know, a metal tank you can buy off McMaster car. So, you know, we, we had to turn them down uh, kind of on both opportunities just because the economics are just not attractive at all. Um, you know, they, I'm sure they get away with a lot of that because everybody wants, wants to work with SpaceX, but you know, for a small company like us, it's just not practical to sell it to somebody like that at a loss, uh, and, um, uh, try to do it at high volume. So, um, I don't have any, you know, additional insight, you know, I think there's, there's still opportunities, you know, with SpaceX and, and others like that. But, uh, for us, we, we have to have, uh, you know, attractive economics to, uh, to push forward because we're, we're in a situation where we have more inbound inquiries than we can handle. And, you know, so we're just trying to keep up with, uh, these other projects that are coming in that are, you know, have attractive business case and, um, you know, just make a lot more sense for a company of our size. How are you handling that commercial, the sales side? How is that structured? Are you guys doing this by, by industry or how are you set up in, on that front? Um, right now, my, my business partner is uh, primarily leading the, the sales efforts with the uh, support of our engineering team and, uh, and other, other folks on the team. Um, but uh, it's, it's definitely a struggle. That's one of the areas uh, that we um, are really hoping to uh, scale up with uh, some future funding or additional uh, contracts because uh, it's there's a lot of missed opportunities. Uh, we've we've missed out on you know we've had to turn down some some big companies like Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, others just because mm -hmm. uh, we just can't handle the volume of of inbound inquiries. And you know some of these guys they'll send you a packet of two thousand pages to to review and five hundred quality clauses. <laughs> And you got to basically prove that you can meet all those things and that you're in compliance and all that. And so uh, it can be uh, quite a big burden with some of those uh, larger players. So, um, yeah, we're looking to scale up that team significantly. And we'll likely split off the uh, space-focused uh, projects and the more industrial applications, or it'll probably be actually aerospace and industrial applications uh, that kind of have their own divisions because the uh, the requirements are, you know, quite different in each area. Are you guys mostly selling in the U.S. or are you selling internationally as well? Um, primarily in the U.S., but we've got uh, a few international customers uh, that we're working on, uh, both the aircraft uh, side and the satellite side. So, uh, but are there any export controls on, on your type of product? Yeah, so it's It's highly dependent on uh, what the program is, what the materials used in the tanks are. Uh, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of confusion, a lot of gray area. So we're we're able to get our products out on certain programs. But we're having to kind of shy away from others that uh, we we don't have a clear uh, understanding of uh, whether it's ITAR or not. So um, we're trying to tread lightly on that, but uh, we are selling mm -hmm. products internationally. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then, I mean, speaking about you know, um, regulations and the government, but more on the positive side, um, is there any opportunities for you guys with you know government contracts or, or even or funding grants, you know, like Sibirs mm -hmm. and stuff like that? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a, a plethora of opportunities out there right now. Um, unfortunately, we we focused on that a lot early in the company, but uh, because it takes a lot to apply for most of those programs, like the government mm -hmm. funding, mm -hmm. um, yep. and we're inundated with uh, commercial opportunities. We haven't really been able to uh, to to focus on a lot of those uh, government uh, government funding opportunities as of late. Um, so that's something else we're trying to uh, put more effort into uh, in uh, 2022 is uh, is getting on some of those. But um, we just have so much commercial interest; uh, it it almost seems silly to uh, to shift focus away. Yeah, no, for sure. And that's I mean, it's something that 
you're not the only ones who are facing this sort of, um, you know, issue. I guess it's a positive issue when you have both commercial demand and you could participate in government contracts and how to divide your time and all of that. Yeah. You're, both, you're definitely not the only ones. Um, but speaking of, you know, funding opportunities, so you mentioned you guys um, decided to put your uh, your fundraising on, um, or one place you decided to put your fundraising is on on Spaced Ventures, mm-hmm. the, uh, Space Crowdfunding Platform. And for full disclosure, and I think uh, many listeners may know this, I'm, I'm an investment advisory committee member at Spaced. What made you guys? Um, what made you guys consider spaced ventures? Um, I think uh, one of the the things that uh, kind of drove us to that was, uh, you know, that we see a good opportunity to uh, to go public at some time in the future. Um, and this was a you know kind of way to get our get our feet wet a little bit, understand more about uh, you know how the compliance works, how the process works of getting listed and the the filings with the SEC and. Um, all that stuff. It was kind of a, a low risk. I mean, there's a decent amount of investment that we had to put into to getting the listing uh, going. But you know, I think a, a lot of it was about that experience. And then, like I mentioned earlier, uh, we wanted to uh, to give you know a lot of our friends, family, and supporters who have seen how we've grown throughout the years the opportunity to invest in the company. You know, whether or not they were uh, accredited investors. So uh, those are kind of the two of the main drivers for us uh, for us listing. Understand. And um, where are you guys based? Uh, we are in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, so not mm-hmm. uh, not really a big space hub, but a uh, big uh, manufacturing hub. A lot of composites uh, going on here uh, due to the uh, aircraft uh, MRO uh, uh, maintenance repair uh, kind mm-hmm. of uh, industry here. But, yeah, we're in Tulsa. Uh, we're we're looking to expand, uh, likely to uh, uh, both Austin and somewhere on the West Coast, probably in the uh, LA area somewhere. And then uh, there's a couple of opportunities to uh, set up a satellite office in Europe as well mm-hmm. that we're exploring. When you're talking about those locations, I assume that's probably mostly for like uh, sort of sales sales rep offices, right? Probably yeah, it would be mostly uh, sales and uh, and engineering. Uh, Primarily because the sales process requires a lot of engineering uh, kind of input. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we're also kind of looking to have an offsite testing facility. Uh, right now, we're in a, an industrial park, so we have you know somewhat close neighbors and stuff like that. And so uh, we're working on getting a test site uh, kind of in a, a more rural area outside of Austin. We blow up a lot of stuff. We do a lot of uh, crazy uh, <laughs> testing, and so uh, we need somewhere we can just kind of do whatever we need and not uh, not disturb anyone else. Yeah, I certainly see my share of sort of like good uh, YouTube videos of like tank test to failure. It's always always entertaining. Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's even more entertaining in person. <laughs> <laughs> cool, um, Matt. The the last uh, couple of questions I always ask um, are traditionally the same. One is, um, you know, if if you weren't doing infinite composites, but sort of you're familiar with the space sector by virtue of you know having them as customers, is there something else you find really intriguing in in the space sector? Um, yeah, I mean, I I've always uh, dreamed of uh, building my own uh, rockets and lunar landers. Uh, I think that's uh, it's just I I like building stuff, and I think um, if I wasn't building the tanks and you know, this may be a future path for this company or my involvement in another company, but uh, I'd, I'd want to be building more kind of integrated vehicles and, and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, I, I'm also very interested in kind of the uh, alternative energy area. Um, you know, I kind of see, you know, the lunar landers, rockets, stuff like that, and kind of the hydrogen alternative fuel vehicles uh, having a lot of overlap. And so um, I'd really like to be, uh, you know, doing more in that area uh, if I wasn't uh, building tanks. Mm-hmm. 
And the final question, uh, science fiction. Do you like science fiction? And if yes, uh, what are some examples of things you like? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I like science fiction. Uh, one of the things that always uh, sticks out to me is uh, there was a, a paper put out by uh, NASA. Uh, it was... Uh, uh, something the title was related to realizing the uh, uh, nuclear propulsion in 2001 space odyssey um and uh, you know the um the paper it's it's somewhat um i don't know if it's satirical is the right word but uh it's uh, it's just interesting you know having nasa scientists writing papers about how we can actually realize these uh you know things that were probably seen as so you know out there in um, you know when a lot of the science fiction novels and uh, uh, and literature was uh, was kind of produced, but uh, bring them to real life. And I mean, I think mm-hmm. you know Elon Musk is probably the best example of that. He basically takes science fiction and turns it into real life, and so that's always been something that's uh, that's really interesting to me. And I love just you know taking things that people think are impossible and. Uh, and making them a reality. So, yeah, I love that kind of stuff. Oh, I know. There are many examples of that, right? I mean, if you speak about nuclear propulsion, you know, I mean, <laughs> the funny example would be, I don't know if you know the the, the French Tintin comics, comic books. Um, he basically, oh, yeah. um, he uses a nuclear rocket, right? Um, but then yeah, there's, yeah. there's so many other things. Like uh, one thing I always notice in, um, in Star Trek or many of the Star Treks, right? Basically, people are using iPads or the equivalent of iPads. Yeah, well, even uh, like I saw uh, somebody develop the tricorder um mm-hmm. you know where you can just like scan stuff and uh you know see what the materials are like people are just you know the new technology that's available today is i think just turning a lot of those things that people thought were impossible into uh into reality and so that's what what really excites me about uh, being in uh you know technology and uh, uh especially space i think space is driving a large majority of that uh kind of uh, progress so yeah absolutely really the one thing we're missing from Star Trek is the, is the replicator. So I hope somebody else yeah. is working on it. <laughs> yeah, they can do it with sheep, right? Uh, just a slow process. Yeah, on that note, Matt, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Um, good luck with your with your race on space and uh, with Infinite in general. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. And, uh, and I look forward to chatting uh, again in the future. Thanks. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.